But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Say that with me out loud. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now I want you to stand because you need the energy this morning. You lost an hour's sleep. We didn't have any coffee for you. You have every excuse in the world. But today, I want you with gusto to say it out loud with me. This verse is so powerful when it really goes from our head to our heart. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. God, this morning, we walk in questioning that like we do every day. And once again, God, would that truth anchor in our hearts that no matter what, we are loved by you. Thank you, Father, for that promise. We claim it again today. It's in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. I want us to have a little bit of fun as we kick off today because I want to make sure you're with me right out of the gate. I'll tell you, I want to ask you a question. If you could have your favorite meal tonight, like the thing that would be like a a guilty pleasure or a real indulgence, you don't even have to make it. It's just going to come to you. What would that meal be? Now, I'll tell you what mine will be. I want you to be thinking about it because I'm going to ask you to share it with somebody next to you. Here's mine. If I could have anything tonight, I think for me it would probably be some fresh, hot fajitas. It can be chicken, it can be beef, but I want some really good homemade tortillas, some really smoked meat, really good vegetables, some fresh guacamole, and some hot sauce that'll just light your mouth on fire. Something really good to make it come alive, okay? That's what I would love to have tonight. How about you? If you could have anything in the world you wanted tonight, what would that be? Take 15 seconds and ask your neighbor, and then share with them what you would like to have tonight as well. Take 15 seconds and do that right now. All right, let's go ahead. You've had enough time just to make something up. If you got nothing else, you can steal my meal, and that's totally fine. Now, over here, it's a little bit darker, so you guys may be tempted to kind of drift off today, so I'm going to keep my eye on you. Anybody over here? Good, thank you. Good to see you all. Shout out one meal that your neighbor shared with you. What is it a meal they'd like to have tonight? Buffalo wings. Buffalo wings. Nice, nice. Spicy or no? Spicy. Of course. Wow, a little attitude. I like that. Good for you. I agree with you. How about right here? Favorite meal? You can have anything you want tonight. What would it be? Whatever you're cooking. Is this your... One of your sons. That's a good son. In advance of Mother's Day, whatever mom is fixing. Let's give it up for this son. That's, that's the way it should be. Well done. All right, right here. How about a meal you would like to have tonight? Anything you want. What would it be? What was it? Ribeye. Ribeye? Nice. It's hard to beat that. Right here, what would you like? Anything you can have tonight, what would it be? Orange chicken and then filet mignon and scallops. You're going for it, right? If we can have anything, why just stop at one great entree? Good for you. How about right here? If you can have anything you want, what would it be tonight? Nachos. Oh, that's an easy one. Very good. I like those too. They're hard to stop eating though, I've noticed. Right here, anybody else? Any meal you can have, what would it be? grilled tri-tip. Are you from California? I had never heard of tri-tip until we went to California. 
That is impressive. Grilled. How many of you have never had tri-tip? Okay. So we look forward to you grilling us and educating us on some tri-tip. Very good. Well, today what we're going to look at is the most famous meal in human history. And you may think that's a little hyperbole, but it really is the most famous meal recorded in Scripture even. It's the most famous meal. It's often called, can you say it with me? The Last Supper. Oh, you guys are smart. The Last Supper. More than 500 years ago, one, uh, Leonardo da Vinci had his most famous paintings, the Mona Lisa and this one, The Last Supper, that he painted in the late 15th century. Capturing that moment, that is without a doubt, the most famous meal of all time. But what I want you to draw your eye to are the guest list. These 12 people that Jesus invited to this famous meal. There are 12 disciples, 12 of his followers who were there with him. And what's interesting about the 12 is in that crowd who ate Jesus' final meal on his final life here on earth, there is one who betrays him and there are 11 who are about to abandon him. Now, if you could invite anybody to your guest list tonight, I bet you wouldn't invite somebody who's betrayed you and 11 people who are about to abandon you. But that's what Jesus did. You see, these 12 people who are on his guest list, they're struggling with who, where do they place their trust? Who do they depend upon? Well, the truth is, we're a lot like the 12 people who are at this final supper of Jesus. Because we're wrestling with the same stuff. Let's be real honest. Most of us, we want to promote our strengths, but we want to hide our weaknesses. You know, all of us walked in today with a backstory. We have an upbringing. We have circumstances. We have things going on in our life right now. But all of us walked in today desperately wanting to be known and deathly afraid that we will be fully known. Because we have some strengths we want others to know about. Man, we also have some weaknesses we don't want anybody to know about, right? And so we walk in and, and, and maybe you don't want anybody to know that you and your spouse had a big argument on the way here this morning. I didn't want to get up. We got an extra loss an hour anyway. We could have slept in and you're making me go to church. Here we are. Or maybe it's with your kids. You had that big argument this morning or last night. Or maybe there's something you did. Or maybe there's integrity that you're starting to compromise at work. Maybe there's something in your thought life that's changing. Maybe you're wrestling with anger. Maybe you're wrestling with insecurity or with lust or with greed or with pride. And you have these things that you're wrestling with in your own life. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. And you have these things that you wouldn't want anybody to know about. And you tend to hide those things you may not hide everything but you tend to hide some things and what we have all learned to do is we have learned how to create a facade where we present a little bit less embarrassing version of ourselves. right we know how to navigate the world where we go I'll share a little bit to where I can connect enough but I don't want them to know everything and so we desperately want to be known but we're definitely afraid of being fully known and that is an exhausting way that most of us will spend our lives, including these 12, who were the guests at Jesus' final meal, the Last Supper. And what do we do? Well, I think we can learn a lot from these 12 folks and from Jesus' response to these 12 at his dinner. Well, if you're new with us this morning, and maybe this is your very first time somebody talked to you to come in because they promised you lunch afterwards, I'm so glad that you are here. In fact, I am new too. This is only my second week being here at LifePoint as the pastor, and so let's just go on a journey together. Yeah. Welcome. 
We would love for you to keep coming. In fact, what we're doing is we're in a new series that we're working all the way up till Easter on April the 4th. And let me just tell you, as Marty said, we have so much planned that day. And if you have a neighbor, if you have a friend, if you have a coworker, if you have somebody who's a student with you, this is such a great time to invite them. And let me tell you something. They are more likely to say yes to your invitation on Easter than any other Sunday this year. So don't miss this chance. Begin to plant the seeds and invite someone. Bring someone. Bring a couple of folks with you on Easter Sunday. We have a lot planned. It's going to be a very special day. And it's a great opportunity to leverage that with your friends and family. So they can introduce, you can introduce them to this great Jesus. Now, we've begun a brand new series, and if you're new with us, what we're doing is we're walking through the final week of Jesus. You say, well, why are we doing that? Because what we believe is it is the most important week because it's the week that changed the world. This is the week where we saw our salvation, where we saw the green light for us to have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. In fact, if you took all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and compiled all their material, one third of their content focuses on this last week because it's so important. So last Sunday, if you remember, we began with that Sunday of Jesus' final week on earth. And on that Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Remember that? And as he entered into Jerusalem, he began the ascent there on the donkey, and all these people are gathered around. It was the donkey's kind of a weird story, but it's just a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And as he enters, all these people are shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, save us now, save us now. They want him to be the Messiah. And it's as if all of, all of history has gathered in this moment to say, he is the superhero of all history. He is the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, and the long-awaited Messiah. And he on that Sunday enters in with thousands of people beginning to recognize he is the Messiah, and he's here. And Sunday, he goes and enters, and then he goes back to Bethany, you remember, outside of Jerusalem. And then on Monday, as we continue this final week, he comes back into Jerusalem. But this time, you remember, he goes to the temple, he throws over a few tables, gets everybody all excited, and then he spends the rest of the day healing and the rest of the day teaching. Well, then he leaves Jerusalem again, he comes back on Tuesday, and once again, he spends the day teaching. He leaves, he comes back again on Wednesday, he goes back to the temple, and he spends the day teaching. Meanwhile, and this is so important, there's a bunch of religious and political folks who are plotting to have Jesus killed. And they've decided, look, he's getting way too, too much attention. He's too much of a rebel. He's not following our religious traditions. And so we're going to have him executed, and they will be successful in their eyes in just a matter of hours. But it's on the Thursday, the day we're going to look at today, where so much of significance happens. On that Thursday, they have the Last Supper. They are there to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you're newer, especially if you're newer to faith, you may think, what is the Passover? Well, let me quickly remind you what the Passover is, because about 1500 B.C., and this is so important that you grab this, so hang in there with me. We're about to look at the story. Around 1500 B.C., the children of Israel are enslaved in the nation of Egypt, and they believe they're hopeless, and God had had enough. 
And so he went to the backside of a desert to a forgotten man named Moses and spoke to him through a burning bush and said, I want you to go before the most powerful man on earth, Pharaoh, and tell him, let my people go. But I'm going to harden his heart, and then we're going to send not one, not two, but ten different supernatural plagues that will soften his heart, and then he will eventually let the people go. So Moses does exactly that, and sure enough, here come the supernatural plagues. First the water was turned into blood, and then there were the lice, and then there were the boils, and then there was the dark. And on and on it went until it got to the 10th plague, which was the mother of all plagues, which was the one where it was the death of the firstborn. But God said, I am going to spare the nation of Israel. If you'll just do this one thing, if you'll take a lamb and you'll sacrifice the lamb and you'll put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, then I will pass over your family and not judge your family. And I will free you from slavery and release you from Egypt. And that is when the Passover was born, when God passed over judgment for these families. And then he said, every year I want you to come and celebrate what I did on that day. And so every year, these folks would gather from all over and they would go back to Jerusalem and they would celebrate this annual event for 1,500 years, the Passover. And Jesus throughout his life has been doing the same thing. He keeps coming back to Jerusalem. And now we come to the first century in this story, Jesus' final Thursday on earth. And once again, he's there to celebrate their 1,500 year tradition, the Passover. However, when you're a guest to Jerusalem, even though it's overflowing with people because everybody's come to Jerusalem to celebrate it, he doesn't have a room. He doesn't have a house. Like many people who would be guests, they would rent a house. They would rent a space. And people would have an extra room above or beside their home. And they would rent it out to these people. And now the disciples go to Jesus and they ask, where are we going to celebrate Passover this year? And that's where we pick up the story. And we're going to look in Mark chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you'll begin to bring your Bibles if you haven't been already. And man, digital is great. But if you'll take an analog Bible like the one that I have, and you'll open up that paper Bible, you can interact in such a fresh and special way. Bring a pen and write in it too. I love just to interact with God's Word in a tangible way. Now, when we get there in just a second, we're going to start in Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. But in a minute, what I can't wait to get to is verse 17. And I want you to remind me when we get to verse 17 by saying out loud, verse 17, because this is the verse I want you to really anticipate when we get there, because Jesus is going to drop three different bombshells at this Last Supper, and the first one comes in verse 17. But we want to get to verse 12 and set this story up. Matthew or Mark chapter 14, look with me in verse 12. We're going to see the most famous meal ever, and 12 people who are on the roller coaster of life like you are and like I am, I want to be known, but I don't want to be fully known. Well, what do we do? We're about to learn from the Last Supper. Let's look at it together. In Mark chapter 12, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14 and verse 12, it says, On the first day of the feast of the festival of the unleavened bread, this is the uh, Passover celebration, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, like we talked about before, Jesus' disciples asked him, well, now, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? A very common challenge to find a place to meet. And so Jesus sent two of his disciples and, tell, and he told them, go into the city and a man, I would underline the word man because this is very interesting, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you 
and follow him. The reason why that's significant is because back in the first century, men had certain tasks they had to do. That meant they carried certain things. And there was a tradition where women had certain tasks they would do, and they would carry certain things. And carrying the water was something that the woman would most likely do. So the fact that a man, though he wasn't, a, you know, he was, it wasn't a violation of a rule for him to carry the water, it was unusual for him to do that. And so right away, Jesus said, here's how you will know this is the person you're to follow. And then that man will come up to you and he will begin to invite you to follow him. It will be obvious what to do. Jesus is given specific details. And then he continues on with the details. Look at next verse. It says, and then say to this man, the one that you will meet, say to the owner of the house, when he takes you there, the teacher asks, and who's the teacher? It's Jesus. Remember, he's been teaching on Monday, on Tuesday, and on Wednesday. Everybody's talking about this teacher who keeps coming to the synagogue and teaching. Make sure you tell them that the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs and up there, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. And this is where they would have the bitter herbs, they would have the unleavened bread, they would have the lamb, they would have the wine, and everything would be there, and you'll be good to go. He's given them incredible detail. It's like, how did you know this is how it would go down? And watch how it comes to fruition in verse 16, it says, and the disciples left, and they went into the city, and they found the things just as Jesus had told them. I would underline that. Just as Jesus had told them. The specifics that Jesus had predicted happened exactly as he said they would. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, I just want to say this to all of us, especially if you're a student. I want to say this to you. By the way, it's so great. Isn't it great to have students serving all over the campus today? This weekend was their D-Now, and they're just generously serving us. And those of you who are volunteers and on staff and have served and given the entire weekend, invested it in the next generation, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for your investment that's making a difference. Amen. And I want to say to those of you who, who are students especially, I hope you just saw what happened. Jesus predicted exactly what would happen, and that's exactly how it went down. Here's what I want all of us to know. God has a prearranged plan for each of our lives, and we don't want to miss it. Because when we submit our lives to him, it's great to say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Yeah, but if you grab a hold of the prearranged plan God has for your life, it is the adventure of a lifetime. It is the adventure where, yeah, there'll be highs and there'll be lows, but it will be the journey that you have been created to go on. There is nothing like walking in God's prearranged plan only to go, well, this is what I've been designed to do. This is what I've been created to do. The joy that comes into your soul when you follow the prearranged plan that God has for your life. And this is where the disciples are wrestling. This is where they're trying to follow him one step at a time. And they're finally going to get to the upper room. They're finally going to get to that place where they have this meal. And here we are at the verse I've been anticipating. Would you just say verse 17? Say that out loud. Say it. I'm just making sure you're still with me. So thank you very much. You're encouraging me. All right, let's read it together. Jesus is about to drop the first of three bombshells. Look at verse 17 with me. 
And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like if you were a fly on the wall and all of a sudden Jesus walks into the room. And then you see, oh, there's Peter. There's James. There's John. You're, you're looking around at Andrew. And you're seeing the disciples, these legends of the faith, walk in with Jesus. You don't care anything about the food. All of a sudden you're looking at who is in the room with you. They walk in. And while they're there, while they were reclining at the table eating, can you imagine the conversation that night around the meal? They're talking about what they've been through, how they've been avoiding certain places and certain people as they are all plotting to be killed. They all have a price on their head and they're trying to navigate this life in Jerusalem while they're there to celebrate the Passover. Imagine the conversation they have. Then Jesus drops the bomb and he says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And in that moment, shockwave went through the room. Because up until now, they've had opposition from outside. Yeah, there's a lot of people who who are trying to, to, to plot to kill Jesus and even them. But for the very first time, this band of brothers, this united group has opposition from within. And now they know for the first time they are no longer safe. And the room is silent as they wonder, who is it? Who is it? Look how they respond as they begin to wonder. It says they were saddened in verse 19. And one by one, they said to Jesus, surely you don't mean me. Now we read this and we have the advantage of the last 2,000 years hearing the story over and over in our lifetime and we already know who the mole is at the table, right? It never dawns on any of them that it could be Judas. It never dawns on any of them. It was not obvious. They were thinking, is it me? Am I the one who could betray you? You know, could could it be James? Could it be John? Like They're looking around thinking, who is the one? But it doesn't dawn on them. That it's Judas. But Jesus already knows who the one is that will betray him. Because the writer of Mark has already revealed it to the reader. We intentionally started in verse 12 today. But now I want us to go back and look at verse 10. Because this has already happened before with the story we're picking up tonight. The story of of the, the, the Last Supper in the evening. Look back at verse 10. It says... Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And then he went to the house to have the Last Supper with him. Can you imagine when Jesus is talking about one of you will betray me? Judas immediately goes, oh no, he's on to me. And his heart must be beating fast. And he must be picking up the bread and he's blinking with guilt. And he's thinking, Jesus is on to me. But but instead of coming clean in that moment, he begins to put up the facade like many of us do. And he's just trying to convince everybody else that he's not guilty. And sure enough, it's working because nobody thinks it's him. And you're wondering, Judas, just come clean. This is your moment. You're standing before the greatest forgiver in history. Just give it a shot. Go before him and let him know what I've done is wrong and I want to make it right. But instead, 
He continues to hide. You think, why would he do that? It's probably the same reason that I continue to hide. Some of the weaknesses in my life, some of the inadequacies in my life, some of the insecurities in my life. Why is it that we tend to hide? Because all of us tend to hide. We may not hide everything, but we tend to hide some things. Why do we tend to hide? Well, one is we want to prove that we're worthy of love. Number two, we don't want to appear weak. Number three, we're afraid that if someone knew this about us, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't love us. And the bottom line is we want to be admired. Man, if I share my weaknesses, you might not admire me. Now, if you're here and you know some Christians and you aren't a Christian yet, maybe you're here, you're just kind of checking things out and you're wondering about this whole Christianity thing and you know some Christians and they seem sometimes to hide their stuff and you know better, you've already seen it. Can I just tell you why we do that? You see, we're, we're messed up like everybody else, right? And we know that Jesus doesn't condemn us and yet we tend to hide. Why is that? Let me give you three reasons why these disciples are wrestling with the same way that we do is we're afraid that our weakness will somehow discredit God's grace. As if his grace is up to me, but I carry the weight of that, don't you sometimes? I don't want my coworkers to know I wrestle with that because I'm afraid it'll somehow discredit God's grace. Secondly, we sometimes, we want to be worthy of God's love. And thirdly, sometimes we're afraid we're going to disappoint God. I don't want to disappoint God. And so sometimes instead of coming clean like Judas should have done, I put on the facade just like Judas did. The truth is we're all tempted to hide some things. It's who we are. It's the struggle that we have in our lifetime where we want to promote our strengths and hide our weaknesses. We desperately want to be known, but we don't want to be fully known. That's what Judas is doing in this moment. And Jesus, who was the greatest forgiver of all time, stands before his disciples And he gives a very stark warning. I want you to see it down in verse 20. It's a warning for Judas, but it's also a warning for all of us. He says, he goes on to tell in the silent room where they just, you know, experienced the shockwave of someone inside going to betrayal. He goes on to say, yeah, it is one of the 12, the one who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go on just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Jesus couldn't have arms more wide open for us in our insecurities, in our inadequacies, in our weaknesses. But there are consequences, and they are grave, when we don't come clean. The invitation is unlimited unless we refuse the invitation. Now, Judas is not at all suspected. In fact, everybody at the table is going, well, it's not Judas because he's the one that handles the money, so we know we can trust that guy. And then then Jesus, who already knows, I find it fascinating, though he knows the details of Judas' betrayal, he allows Judas to be at the table. Isn't that great? He knows the details of your weakness and mine, and he allows us to be at the table. He knows them better than I know them, and he allows me to be at the table. Here's the really good news. God, no matter what, there is a seat at God's table 
for you. No matter what. You have a seat at God's table right here, right now, in this moment. But what the disciples have no idea is Jesus isn't done dropping the bombshells because he's about to send another shockwave through this group. Look at it in verse 22 where Jesus talks about the Passover itself. He says, while they were eating, and you know it's just completely silent. Everybody's going, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? I mean, this is the ultimate TMZ moment, right? Everybody's like, we got to find out who this is. I don't know who. Like, is it you? And, and the conversation now, any casual conversation, they're trying to figure out if it's them. You know, it's, it's not a normal conversation from here on out. And while they're eating and having this conversation, Jesus takes the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take Take it, this is my body. And they're like, wait, what? We're here to celebrate the 1500-year tradition of the Passover. This is about bringing a lamb every year, forgives our sins just for a year, then we'll come back next year and we'll celebrate what happened 1500 years ago. And you're talking about you, Jesus. What does this have to do with you? And Jesus goes on, he keeps kind of unrolling this new uh, bombshell. He says, and then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I would underline the word covenant and poured out for many, he said to them. In fact, you might even write in your Bibles here, Isaiah 53, verses 11 through 12, because this is a fulfillment of that very prophecy, poured out for many. And Jesus is saying, there's a new covenant that starts today. You no longer go through the high priest, you go directly to God. I'm gonna rip the veil from top to bottom and you're gonna have direct access to God because of what I'm about to do on the cross. The Passover is now about me. Now watch in the next verse, verse 25. He says, the truth I tell you, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here's the bombshell that Jesus just laid right in front of everyone that night. He said, Passover has always been about me. The Passover has always been about me. And think about it. They would take a lamb and every year they would sacrifice it and so that God would pass over and now he is saying the whole 1,500 years we've been pointing to this moment. What I'm about to do tomorrow, Jesus could say, is fulfill 1,500 years of tradition when it's been pointing toward me. You remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Lamb who satisfies sin's debt, past, present, and future. The blood will be spread across the cross, and those who find their way there, God will pass over, and they will be set free from sin's debt, just like the Israelites were set free from Israel's slavery. The Passover marks in this moment their tradition changes Tonight, Jesus said. Tonight, there is a new covenant. Tonight, tradition changes. And oh, by the way, I'm going to split the calendar and everything before is going to be B.C. Everything after is going to be A.D. Like everything changes in this 
moment and the Passover. Now we don't have to use a lamb. We have the bread and we have the cup because Jesus is the lamb. And the Passover was always about him. Now, by the way, we're going to take communion on April the 1st at that night of worship. And I hope you'll come and be part of that. We're going to teach just a little bit, but we're going to have some time of worship. And then we're going to celebrate it together. It's more than a 2,000-year tradition, though. It's a 3,500-year tradition that changed 2,000 years ago. And believers have been partaking ever since to remember his body and to remember his blood that was poured out for us on the cross. What a sacred moment this is. But there's one more bombshell. Look at verse 26. It seems to be kind of wrapping up and feeling good because with the next verse it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So now they're going from indoors to outside and they're out in the night air and they're thinking, wow, what an incredible thought. There's somebody that's amongst us who's betraying and Jesus has just changed tradition. What a lot to take in. And Jesus goes, oh, One more thing. One more thing. And look at verse 27. You will all fall away. You will all abandon me. None of you will stick with me. Every one of you will be fugitives. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You can write down Zechariah 13, 7. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And then I love what he says next. You're talking about grace, even in this moment. Look what it says. But when I have risen, not if, but when I have risen, he says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. This is like the ultimate rendezvous in a Western movie. He says, I'll meet you in Galilee. Right? Like, you're going to fail. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to rise again. But hey, you know what? I'll meet you in Galilee and we'll make all things right. You will not lose hope in what you are about to do. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus said that, knowing who Jesus is, I would just, I would fall at my, on my knees and say, oh my goodness, this is God the Son talking. But not Peter. Remember how impulsive Peter is? Peter begins to argue with Jesus. Look how he responds. Peter responds right away and he goes, oh, no, no, even if all fall away, I will not. Jesus, you're really smart, but you're missing something. I am really committed. And you're missing it here. I will not fall away. And then you see a crack in his character because he actually says, even if all fall away. It's almost like he's saying, I can see how James would fall away. Oh, John over here, I've never trusted him. Right? He's, look at Bartholomew. He's always had those beady little eyes. I knew he would bail on us sooner or later. But Jesus, you can count on me. My commitment is higher than the rest. And Jesus, I was talking to Rob about this week. You just kind of want Jesus to go hashtag sovereign, hashtag omniscient. Like, I know everything. Stop arguing with me. Look at the next verse whenever Jesus kind of gets real direct with him. He says, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. You not only are going to abandon me, Peter, you're going to do it tonight. You're not going to just do it once, though. You're not going to do it twice. You're going to abandon me. Three different times you're going to deny me. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm Peter, I would, you know, okay, wow, you're getting really specific. You must know something I don't. But not Peter. Like, it's just completely irrational. He is so over irrationally committed to his commitment. Look at the next verse. It says, but Peter insisted emphatically. 
Jesus, I know you're God, but let me correct you. And he goes on to say, even if I have to die with you, I would never disown you. And here's the funniest part to me. Look at the next few words. And all the others said the same thing. You, you, ever, you, you remember the story where, uh, where uh, Steve Jobs was often famous with Apple in the early days of creating this reality distortion field, a phrase kind of coined from Star Trek. You remember, he, he would go and tell people very unrealistic things, but he was so convincing after a while, people were like, I think I'm going to give it a shot. I, I think I'm going I'm to do that. And people would, would attempt the impossible because of this re reality distortion field. Peter seems to have that ability, that he's such a good salesman that even though God the Son just said, this is specifically what you're going to do, he goes, no, 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 no. Let me tell you why that will never happen. And after a while, people are like, I think I'm going with Peter. I think Peter must know something God the Son doesn't know. Man, is it raining outside or what? I know that's what you're thinking. You're totally, you're outside getting wet in your mind. I got it. Well, thank you, Lord, for the rain, right? We'll hold off on the, on the uh, ice and snow for a bit, but we'll take the rain. Peter says, we'll never deny you. His fan club, the rest of the disciples say, I'm with Peter. We'll never deny Jesus. And guess what? They had every reason to think that. Because you look at Peter's resume. Peter's an impressive fellow. Do you ever think of his resume? Peter's the one who left his career to follow Jesus. He's the one who left his net and he followed Jesus early on. One of the very first disciples to do that. Peter's the only disciple who walked on water. Yeah, he fell in after a little bit, but he's still the only one that got out of the boat, right? Peter's the one who in Matthew 16, 18 said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He has what's called Peter's Declaration. Never heard of John's declaration. Never heard of James' declaration. No, it's Peter's declaration. Let's follow that guy. And then he's been personally mentored by Jesus. He's not only one of the disciples. He's in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So everybody looks to Peter. When Peter says, this is the way it'll be, people follow him. But here's the problem. This is just a good leadership principle that you probably already appreciate. Yesterday's successes do not guarantee tomorrow's victories. And Peter had great faith yesterday in all these examples. But he's got new challenges tomorrow, which will require new dependence upon God. And in this moment, he was saying, but Jesus, I know who I have been in the past. Therefore, I can say with confidence, I will not fail you. The reality is we know we're capable of failure every single day. And we must regularly redepend upon the Father. And yesterday's successes do not guarantee tomorrow's Victories, but all the disciples wanted it to be so. Let me just say, we stop depending on God when we start trusting our abilities and when we start hiding our inabilities. In either case, I am hoping imperfect people will give me approval and love that only the Father can give me. And when I'm searching for that exhausting roller coaster that we all go on in life, we have stopped depending on God. Oh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the part of the equation I play. I am the sinner. With some gifts God has given me and a whole bunch of inadequacy, a whole bunch of weakness, a whole bunch of insecurities. And while I'm there, Christ died for me, demonstrating his great love for me. 
So all the things that I'm wanting to be known and I'm afraid of being fully known, God already does. And he already invites me to his table. He already invites you to his table. And if you hear nothing else, I just want to hear this. I want you to hear this as we close. God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. And you could never do anything to get God to love you more. You could never cause him to love you less. He just invites you to his table. There is a seat for you at his table. Your creator invites you, his created, to his table for communion. And there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you more. God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. And this is the great invitation that many of us miss because we spend our life trying to get known by some un imperfect people, trying to hide my weakness from other imperfect people. Meanwhile, a perfect God loves me perfectly and he invites me in. You say, well, how do I know whether or not I'm depending on God adequately today? I think one simple test is this. How are you praying? Prayer reveals who I really think is in charge. Prayer is expressed helplessness. Recognizing that I must depend on him. And when I stop praying, I am starting to get to this, I want to be known, but I'm afraid of being known. I want to be known, I'm afraid of being And I'm less depending upon the one who knows me most and loves me most. Think about it. His final night, Jesus invites a betrayer and 11 fugitives. He invites a fraud and 11 people who are on their way to abandon him to his table. And tonight, he invites you. Today, he invites you. And let me close with this question. What if... What if there was a place where the worst of you could be known and instead of being loved less, you would be loved more? Jesus has created that kind of a place at his table. And he invites sinners like me and you to his table because any goodness that is in us doesn't come from us but from the cross that we have submitted in the shadow of the cross, we see all the goodness we'll ever need. And today, that means I can be free like never before because I can go before the Father and tell him everything and express my helplessness. Let me close with these three questions. Because Yesterday's successes don't guarantee tomorrow's victories. Let me ask you this. Is there an area of your life where you're trusting your own abilities and not depending on God? Because God loves you exactly as you are and not as you should be. Is there an area of your life where you're pretending or hiding and you would be mortified if anybody found out? Is there someone who's walking with you? Are you coming clean before the Father? And then finally, transparency is the first step to intimacy with God. I often say that we are only one rated R prayer away from intimacy with the Father, but we've got to come clean instead of pretend. And since transparency is the first step toward intimacy, let me ask you, would you be willing to set aside some time and just sit at the Father's table and come clean fully and finally with a Father who desperately knocks at your door and is willing to come in and dine with you if you will 
let him in. God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. You guys have been great today with all the challenges. You've been so engaged. I just want to thank you for that. Would you just give yourselves a hand for being so great today? Now, let's do this. Let's all stand and let's close and once again declare this truth. God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. But would you say once again, Romans 5 eight, and we will close together. Say it out loud with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. God, that just sometimes feels too good to be true. And because of that, I try to find what only you can give me in your created. Other people, other things. And there is nothing in this world that is big enough to satisfy my soul but you. So God, help me with childlike faith to come back to you again today. Recognize with all my struggles, with all my weaknesses, with all my insecurities, I come to you again. And I discover your great love that only satisfies. No matter what our weakness, we are loved. Help us live in that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.